0: podcast Venu Vasudevan from Procter & Gamble talks about his journey to creating a data science team. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to another episode of Future Data Podcast. Today we have with us Venu Vasudevan, who is a research director and um, of data science and AI practice at Procter & Gamble, where he directs the data science and AI organization at p Research. He is a technology leader with a track record of successful consumer and enterprise innovations at the, inter- at the intersection of AI, machine learning, big data and IoT. Previously, he was VP of data science at an IoT startup, a founding member of Motorola team that created Zigbee, IoT standard. Worked to create an industry first zero click interface for mobile um, with Dak Kitlos, uh, who is a co-creator of Apple Siri. Created an industry's first Google Glass experience um, for TV. And Aris video analytics and big data uh, platform recently acquired by Comcast. And a social analytics platform leveraging Twitter that was featured in Wired Magazine and BBC. Venu holds a PhD in database and AI from the Ohio State University and was a member of Motorola's science advisory board. Uh, and uh, these are like top two percent of uh, Motorola technologists. So pretty cool there. And he's an adjunct professor at Rice University's electrical and computer engineering department and was a mentor uh, at Chicago's 1871 startup incubator. So Venu with that, uh, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you, Vishal.
1: Thank you for inviting me and the generous introduction.
0: You're, so this is, I think all the relevant keywords stuck together. So I think um, you definitely have uh, worked in some of this key key areas. So why don't you walk us through your journey till now? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: Certainly. Uh, so my career, you can think of it as a microcosm of the evolution of the data and AI boundary, as it, as it turns out. Um, I started out as an electrical engineer uh, because that was a way for phys- somebody with an interest in physics to make money. Uh, but over time, I realized I had a taste for some of the softer side, the interdisciplinary side of things uh, that took me into computer science, which when I first w- got into, I thought it was a mature field. But now I realize how young it was when I had to joined it. Uh, my PhD was in knowledge-based systems, which I think today would be called product lifecycle management. But um, part of my PhD was how do you embed AI in a digestible way into databases and in a way that there's a benefit to the sort of uh, industry. Uh, in our case, the, the the value prop was that if you embed expert systems into data, then it can validate or invalidate from a process perspective the data as it's being created. Uh, so my PhD uh, was also contributed to a startup that was acquired by parametric technologies back then. Uh, today, that's a very common thing for a PhD student to also work on a startup on the side. But, you know, back in the days when I was doing that, it was it was certainly a deviation from normal. Um, next, I, I I sort of took those ideas and applied it to, uh, I joined Motorola and applied it to a large, uh, one of the largest chips in the, uh, in the semiconductor industry at that point. Um, at that point I got the bug to do something that was a big story. And there was a project called Iridium that was just, uh, germinating at that point, which was this notion of, uh, six satellites that circumnavigated the globe and created it sort of a cellular network. Ah, uh, so I became the uh, the database and network management architect, or architect of uh, of Iridium, which um, not only had a lot of interesting data science problems, but gave you sort of brag-worthy experiences in, for example, using an SR seventy-one to test satellite. Wow. Uh, it was the only object that could move fast enough to simulate uh, a satellite. But uh, so that was, I would say. Um, big data, even by today's standards, we were looking at about 1 million events a second coming from 66 satellites on every second. And part of the idea was, can you make sense through event aggregation and all the technologies that are now familiar. Um, so that was sort of a great experience in terms of what does what the biggest of the big look like in, you know, in a data science context. Um, but after that, um, given that that was the first wave of AI, um, I sort of went into a startup that was being funded by DARPA to look at intelligent agents uh, for industrial applications and how they could tame semi and unstructured data. Um, Spent some uh, fun times there, but realized that maybe it was too early for AI to make an impact on the world. However, there was this thing called a mobile, which was a dull voice uh, device at that point, but this might turn into a vehicle through which AI would ultimately manifest itself. Uh, so that took me prematurely, I would say maybe six or seven years prematurely to Motorola where I, I thought the whole community would see it was blindingly obvious that a mobile was a data device uh, and that you know we could get on with, with innovating. Um, but what I realized was that um, you know often as an innovator, you are well ahead of the industry. So part of what you need is a, a point of view, but part of what you mm. need is patience. And it really took seven years between when I joined um, and the advent of the iPhone that you really got that inflection point uh, around mobile being sort of a data device. That said, um, so that period of time took me to, when I wasn't solving big data problems, but I was solving untidy data ones. Things like, um, mm. how do you wade through a mass of user behavior to clean user context and attention? And what do you do with that user context and attention to create you know, context-aware services for the end user, for instance. Uh, How do you deal with the fact that networks are not optimal and uh, cache data upfront to create services that delight the user uh, while dealing with the network as it is? I would call call that period of time um, as a data scientist learning to create customer delight in bounded economics, Mm. you know. The cost of what you built would be bounded, the bandwidth would be bounded, et cetera. And along the way there, uh, we started looking not just at mobile as a data uh, source and a data opportunity, but uh, sensors, especially industrial sensors as a data source and opportunity, which led a small team of us to invent ZigBee, which we didn't really think would be all the things it, it is today. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, again, there's another example where you create technology and you create user experiences, but the... Real impact in the world is when the economics get to a point mm. where where it all makes sense. So after that, you know, the iPhone happened, and then the big data game was on. I think the, the industry as a whole saw the big data game was on. Uh, I think people talked about convergence of mobile, social, and media back in the early '90s, mm. but it really took the advent of the iPhone for those words to actually come together in a way that had punch. Um, at that point, uh, the next few years, I spent time addressing. How you could take social, which is evolving at the same time as mobile. What does social plus mobile plus media mean? That makes media more participative, more engaging, especially sort of old style, classic media such as such as TV. How do you make it more participative? I looked at that space and and sort of more recently looked at uh, how can machine learning and social combine to reformat TV. Mm. Uh, let me give you a flavor of uh, what I mean there. Uh, um, TV content is getting to to a point where it's high, high risk low reward today mm. it, it costs 100 million dollars to make game of thrones and if you go ask uh any of these editors what's happening on minute 31 is that an interesting minute but and by the way that costs two three hundred thousand dollars they'll say well i don't really know i created the story and i put it out there and hopefully it works
0: right
1: but part of what we brought to the table was how do you use machine learning and you know what you're talking about a petabyte a week worth of data how do you take the combination and understand the stories within the stories? Uh, so we created some technology there that uh, was ultimately acquired by Comcast. But it was it was an example, uh, a very concrete uh, example at at scale that, you know, really gave me uh, experience of untidy large data sets with multiple potential stories you could tell around that, with each with potentially a business model that needed to be invented. After that, um, having spent a bunch of time in large companies, I got the bug to go back to small companies, and I said, "Okay, this time, IoT is really going to happen." Uh, having tried it, you know, in the Zigbee days, etc. Um, that was a it was it was a fun experience uh, looking at how do you um, create another daily touch product around smart lighting, um, and I realized that as a technologist in data science, you are especially if you're trying to reinvent industries, you have two counterbalancing weights. One is the potential for new technologies to reformat the problem, the other is the weight of legacy so if you're reinventing a switch it's great to reinvent a switch that works in a new house but how do you get to reinvent a switch that works with you know fifty year old uh, electrical lighting and electrical uh, structures and you know seventy year old electricians who install them um, mm-hmm. so all that you know was a really engaging experience. Um, understood the positives and negatives of startup uh, life again. Um, but I think part of that sort of brought me back to Procter & Gamble saying, well, I think I've looked at inventing a new daily touch product, but I think what would be more interesting as a next chapter to my life is taking a company that already builds daily touch products mm. that engage four billion users and saying, how do you redefine that product in the eyes of the user and in the eyes of how it sort of goes to market? So that's a microcosm of uh, you know of, of my career. Uh, in, in hopefully five minutes or thereabouts.
0: We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. That's. I think that's that's beautiful. And, and by the way, thank you so much for, uh, for walking us through that. Let's let's talk about your um, uh, so before we, we get into your nitty-gritties of, of your past, let's talk about your current role in PNG. Like, what what is that role, and if you can any walk us through whatever you can share?
1: Yes, yeah, so PNG uh, sort of a, has a long history of um, market defining products of marketing science and retail science. They sort of invented a lot of those, uh, and as also sort of open innovation. A strong bench of statisticians. So what they were looking for was somebody with a, a blended background who could come in and help the company move from strong statistical capabilities to to big data, which, as you know, tends to be you know interdisciplinary. So I, I direct an R&D group of data scientists with strong stats background, data engineers as well, to create business value around both the daily touch products, you know, the the the, uh, the razors, the the uh, the soap, et cetera, things that. Uh, we use on a daily basis, but behind these daily touch products is high-performance science. There's mm. chemistry, microbiology, material science. That you know, as as I think, Steve Jobs used to say, "Easy is hard." Mm. So you know, behind every easy experience is actually a whole bunch of hard work that goes goes in. So um, so really, my team looks at uh, big data problems around how do you create products, uh, how do you connect the science models within them to what the consumer perception of the science model is going to be. Um, you know without necessarily building and and launching those products as also how do you take um our products which are facilitating mundane daily activities and sort of elevate the relationship between our product and the end user using using big data using uh using consumer feedback for instance
0: interesting interesting and and thank you so much for for walking us through that so one thing that um when you, when you were explaining your your background that 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 sort of uh, got me excited was your your Zigbee days, right? So I think if you look at today, um, and this is, I get into this conversation a lot, um, standardization of technology, right? So now technology is sort of getting uh, more convoluted and and sort of more complicated. And then uh, basically we have seen operating systems for now mobile devices, that's iOS and and those things, we have seen operating systems for our personal computers, and basically, they they created some common standards, and everyone just jumped on it. And they can build app on it, and all that fun stuff. But IoT world is pretty pretty sort of discreet in Like it's still very uh, in its infancy stage. Everyone is coming up with their own sort of sweet flavor of what to do. Like what what was your experience of um, from your Zigbee days of creating the standardization? Like what are some of the things that comes to your like that you have to think about in creating the standardization? And then looking at the trends now, what do you think are like, are we going in the right track? Do you think we'll we'll achieve a standardization sort of, uh, or, or basically some standards that we all can follow uh, in building this IOT? Like would would we have an IOT OS anytime soon? So what what are your takeaways on that?
1: So a little bit of history. I think we created the ZigBee standard at, a, at an interesting time in the life of standards. If you look at standards before ZigBee, let's say before, you know, mm-hmm. 2005-ish, standards were typically created and controlled by industries. Hmm. They were carefully created, carefully crafted with certain use cases, certain business models in mind. And I think the advent of software, you know, sort of pervading through all industries, fundamentally changed how standards are created. I think standards today are much more developer-driven, much more driven by a de facto app, and often driven by, you know a large company or two large companies that can create these things at scale. Um, So even back in the days, it was IETF, the the Internet Engineering Task Force, used to be much more of that semi-chaotic sort of world. And I think over the last 10, 12 years, we have seen the value of that semi-chaotic world, not worrying about mobilizing entire industries, but somebody takes the lead and and makes things happen. But um, I think, internet of things makes me wonder if we need to go back to some of the more orderly mm. approach to standards because uh iot is all about interoperability it's interoperability mm. not about the capability of any single superior device it's about everything in the home working together and i and i joke about this saying um you know uh if standards were not to develop in, in the smart home then when a kid is born in 2025 uh, you're going to baptize them, you're going to pick their in a private school if you're in a certain mindset, and you're going to have to pick at that point Are you going to be an Apple, Amazon, or Google household? because once you make <laughs> stuff'm I'm, right. I'm hoping that standards that we create some standards over the next 10, 15 years, so we bring back open competition because we're rapidly getting to that point where the user experience if you really want a credible user experience in the home, you pretty much have to pick a vendor and go with, go with what they bring to the table.
0: Right. no I think spot on like uh, i was I was having a conversation with um ford's um chief data officer a couple of couple of uh, weeks back and he had the same concerns right so they're saying that right now like we are more dependent on sensors and and it's more as you rightly pointed out it's the interoperability that that's the secret sauce now if they don't interoperate then it's like you're absolutely right you have to be baptized apple or whatever right and just It just makes it less powerful for everyone. And then we get into this. um, So yeah, I think, thank you for sharing your point of view on that. Now let's, let's talk about the AI. Like, so uh, when I was um, a couple of years back practicing AI, it's, it's ridiculous. Like it's, it's, it's buggy. I like it's, it's useless piece of technology. Um, It's very high error rates what do you think uh, what what was what's your perspective how ai has evolved from a couple of maybe decades back to to now like what what's what's your take on that we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast
1: So I guess I have seen multiple of these chapters of technology come and revolutionize you know our the way we live I have two opposing forces in me one is the skeptic who has seen bubbles that are too good to be true prove out to be too good to be true but there are other cases like web 2.0 where I underestimated the impact it would have or camera phones and the extent to which they changed and they made uh, all of us visual beings, uh, and you know, citizen journalism, for instance, where I underestimated the extent to which uh, you know it impacted us. And so, when I see the sort of Cambrian explosion of innovation in AI, those two forces in me uh, sort of uh, debate each other. Mm-hmm. But my, my view is, I'm, you know, over the last couple of years, I've become a I've become a believer, partly because I think the 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 sort of innovation in AI today is actually um, fueled by theories that were created 20-25 years ago mm. and in fact those were theories that were discredited at that point because they, they just, just didn't have enough data to validate um, the, you know, that they could operate. They needed data to, to sort of appear at that scale. That said, uh, so I think that uh, that is my view from a performance point of view that that deep learning is actually redefining not only what you can do with data, it's redefining what machine learning means, and it's actually uh, upending certain techniques that were very popular right before it. Uh, clearly, from a societal perspective, the big concern is the tension between performance and explainability. And I think mm. in a lot of domains, that I think still hasn't played out, and hopefully it plays out in a way that is positive uh, you know, for society.
0: Your current role um, in PNG, and g so when, when they um, sort of brought you on boards. And, and if you look at a company like CP, a CPG company and with with, um, with an umbrella brand and all that, and you, how do you envision yourself in that role? Like how, what are some of the things that comes to your mind when you evaluate running a data science and AI practice for for, for, a, for, a, for a wide CPG company? Like what are some, some of the thoughts?
1: I think I think of a practice as, uh, first of all, if you think of the world outside in, what are the categories of problems you're trying to solve um, what are the untidy crevices you know within that categories and w- what kinds of disciplines either upscaling the people you already have or you know what kind of new people you know would you bring that would allow you to you know take a formulate the problem in a way that is uh, progressively solvable the whole sort of lean lean uh, innovation mindset uh, so that's that's how I look at it you know from Coming from not a hard science background or a computer science background, I would say you know I probably have a short attention span. Uh, you know I don't I don't solve problem in 10 year horizons. I solve problem in three horizons with sort of six month checkpoints on you know how are you how are you doing so to speak, right? Um, so that's uh, how I how I look at it from the point of view of of talent. I think most of us um, most of us start with a base of People who have a certain skill set, and so we're really looking at not growing a team from sort of immaculate conception sort of team, but how do you how do you how do you grow a, a bench, uh, you know, in directions in, in directions you want to go? So from a from that perspective, I'd say it's it's a it's a combination of uh, adapt, adopt, and evolve. And I've grown mm-hmm. uh, I've grown data science teams who are strong in engineering. I've grown data science teams now who are strong in statistics. So they each come with a certain certain rootedness where they're good. And then part of the common part of growing a team, I think is establishing a data culture, which is, you know, listen to the stories the data can tell, don't fall in love with the data you have, because maybe the data you have isn't where the story is. Maybe the data you don't have that you need to collect is where the story is. Uh, And then have a clear sense of what is the claimable benefit you can extract from the data sets. You need to have a sense of, not just can I do better than now, but can I do better than whatever I'm doing now that will actually make a difference from a business perspective. And mm-hmm. finally, um, I think I, I I really preach that you need to be interdisciplinary to a fault because mm-hmm. real problems don't care about what discipline you come from. They are what they are.
0: That's interesting. No, I think well said. So um, on, on that note, like what what has been your journey difference when it comes to startup vis-a-vis uh, a company with um, a, a a, a transnational uh, corporation. Like, what are what are some of the some of the stark differences that you have seen as a practitioner uh, to build a data science and AI practice? What are some of the thoughts there?
1: So, typically in a startup, you have you're solving one problem at a time, and you're going narrow and deep, and you're going at hundred miles an hour. So, you define the problem. Um, and you're trying to you are operating at at the low end of scale, so to speak. You're just looking for problem that takes you from, um, you know, from nascent to one level of maturity. Um, so on the one hand, you may have a clarity to what the problem statement is because that's how you work one problem at a time. The flip side is you're not necessarily looking on day one to impact the world at scale. Hmm. Uh, I think running a data science organization a large company is more of a portfolio process. It's understanding, you know, the different areas where there's enough clarity that you can go solve a problem. And at the same time, thinking about, uh, as you build a portfolio, thinking about leverage, which is, if I solve this problem, how many other business categories is it likely to have sort of an effect on? So I, I spend a lot more time triaging, um, selecting problems that could have multiplicative benefit as also sort of balancing uh, the risk reward of different, uh, you know, different things that the team works on.
0: Interesting, um, and I think one thing that that also we, we we see a lot is the bias problem. That's right now sort of uh, uh, getting into the data science practice. Like what I so a couple of years back, IT was a new phenomena. People were sort of investing into this IT. IT get into the DNA of corporate DNA, and now IT is one of the fundamental uh, building block of a corporation. Now data science is following the same trajectory. Now Many of like many of the data scientists or chief data officers, they are part of now board advice board of advisory as well for the same reason that it's a, it's a critical component now since, and this field is disrupting like this field is expel there are a lot of new things emerging a lot of sort of uh, old thing getting obsolete pretty quickly. How do you so in this scenario? businesses are relying more and more on individuals who are actually carrying that, that autonomy within a company to execute this practice. The bias problems creeps in, right? So if I know this is the best, how am I ensured that what I know is the best? So what are some of your thoughts around around, around that, that idea of the bias in, in, in this data science industry? I think one way to
1: combat bias is not to be too internally focused. Um, you know, as a company or as a group. So one of the things I push is, you know, compete with the best and always be aware of the best because they, I would say each company is probably has an internal bias within it. Uh, mm. I don't, no matter how great a company you are shaped more by your successes, you know, you are shaped by your successes and, and failures, And they sort of sit, uh, you know, more prominently in your mind than anything else. Uh, one of the things I like to say is whatever made you successful is probably what's going to, you know, make you fail. That's so just the nature There's just the nature of things. And in a way that's that's good because that allows new companies and new ideas to sort of come into the mix. So I would say the, the single most important thing is be aware of what's happening externally and, you know, treat a technique that your competitor is using or an adjacent industry is using, especially an adjacent industry that is ultimately likely to come into your space, is likely to be using a different technique than you. Uh, and having been sort of in the Motorola, Nokia world and you know, seeing how we didn't disrupt each other, actually Apple disrupted us, hmm. because it came in and applied a different set of rules. Uh, so I'm very cognizant about that, um, that idea of um, a wide angle vision reduces bias.
0: Hmm. Interesting, interesting. No, I think, yeah, absolutely. So uh, one story that I, 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 I recall, like I was talking to one of the product managers of Blackberry, and he said that like, since like we were hitting our targets, we were hitting all of our goals, we were sort of growing as at the pace that we were growing and all that, suddenly the market, the landscape shifted itself. So the parameter that we were monitoring were not re- like, they became one of the industry's core parameters and the parameter that we were actually monitoring and killing it, no one cared about that eventually. So with that, I think, you you get you raise an interesting point of having a, a wider scope or a wider lens of the problem because then you sort of you can surface these these microcosms like this micro uh, ecosystem that emerging to keep a tap on that now um if if we talk about say and you said in, uh, uh, internally focused um, staying more out like uh, not get not too internally focused so on that concept culture comes to my, my mind right so when you join a bigger company Culture is one of the one of the core fundamental block, or or sort of whether it's an opportunity, whether it's a it's a, it's a weakness, how you how however you want to take it. Like now, as a practitioner to take these new concepts of data science and AI, if you hit, and you have hit uh, with with companies which are very core fo- culture focused, you have worked with very beautiful companies who are innovating and have but have still have maintaining their their core culture. How? What are some of the success or best practices uh, that you can share that has helped you s- stay successful uh, while working with these companies? Yeah, I think
1: one of the things to to, to consider, with, especially with cultures that uh, companies that have a history and have a culture, is not to view culture as an anachronism, but actually to view it as a signature of past success. You know, uh, for example, when I was in Motorola, it was very common for people to look at problems from the point of view of antenna design or voice or radio frequency. And that was because a lot of Motorola successes came out of that space. Um, So you you should take it for what it is. Uh, It it brings a certain strength, typically, you know, uh, the revenue base, you should not take it as something you're going to be able to change overnight. It's, It's a reality you're going to have to work with. But I think then you have to have the tenacity to gradually build credibility. Again, going back to the Motorola example, it took four or five or seven years for the company and the industry to realize that mobile data was a, a huge opportunity. And part of why I, I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur, uh, you certainly want sort of clarity and honesty in framing a question so that people who are not necessarily from your domain can understand it. But the other part is tenacity. An idea in these spaces may take months or years, even in some cases, and success actually comes just when you're ready to give up. Because people who are not necessarily in your domain need to hear an idea articulated two or three or four times they need to see those small successes and then the the sort of wheels begin to turn, and when you do succeed there's a there's a great deal of gratification because it, it was not simply because you were smarter or your idea was clever, but you sort of um, rode that long race and sort of won it at the end well
0: interesting um beautiful point by the way i think when you were saying that one thing that that came to my mind um, and that's true from from your 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 uh, academic background and we hear it a lot from from uh, academics who are still involved uh, with with sort of learning and and go, like understanding what's going on and the the thought of say uh, all the mathematical models all the core concepts when they were involved or when they were invented um at that point, there was not too much data. Like there was the number sets, were not, not that too heavy and all that. So the error bar concept was not anyone's worry, right? But now, sort of, now we are dealing with data that we have never dealt with before, and and I think so. I it, one one professor actually he put it he put it best. He said that the entire framework of mathematics needs to be revisited, considering the amount of data that we are we are relying on, because otherwise there will be like a lot of black swan opportunities that could emerge. Because our models are not prepped and prepared for these um, uh, these sort of uh, ginormous data sets. So, what are some of your some of your thoughts um, on 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 that phenomena? Like, what what's your take? What's your take on that?
1: That's a really interesting debate because all of a sudden, theoreticians have gone from glory to despair over mm. the last two or three years. Right. With uh, you know, it used to be in a computer vision conference. Your program committee was all, you know, people who developed algorithms. And now all of a sudden, all people care about is, well, how many GPUs did you use right. for right.
0: Uh, your,
1: your you know, relatively straightforward algorithm to run and do things in ways that, um, that, that uh, and I think this is, to me, this is part of the growth of every industry. You start with the practitioners mm-hmm. grabbing on to opportunity where, you know, without necessarily analyzing it. That. It's almost like a. It's almost like a startup where you say you have a bunch of teenagers who, who just use a technology to create as much leverage as possible, and then over time, the principles which can't evolve at the speed at which you know empirical experiments can, sort of uh, come to play. So I, I believe and theory in having theoretical foundations is going to be super important even in deep learning. But um, I think it's 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 still refreshing to see. Uh, the extent to which a you know a, a new technique can create um, um, sort of so much debate, so much impact in a, in a short period of time.
0: Interesting, and uh, yeah, I think thank you so much for for uh, sharing your point of view on that. I think two two books uh, comes to my mind when 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 I, when I think about like culture, the idea of culture, and and the idea of something as cutting edge as data science and AI. So innovators dilemma, right? So they talk about sustainable innovation with with disruption. So they say, say, hey, uh, sustainable is whatever we are operating now and disruption is what probably you can work on the future. And the other is, I think it's called power of now. And they, they talk about an interesting perspective. So they say, hey, you know, humans have a tendency to reconcile past to present. Like our, our entire corporate culture is built around past to present. What have you done last year? Is what probably I'll evaluate how you did something, and then probably I'll think of from that scale what your capability in the future is. And he, and he said the problem is when you are having too much disruptions going on, reconciling present to the future is all the more important, right? Because now the idea is, it's it's like you pointed out uh, a, a, a couple of minutes back that you probably won't exist if if you don't cope up with this. Uh, with what's what's happening around in, in in the future, how do you reconcile between between these two sort of um, these two worlds, like understanding culture, appreciating that, and then dragging it to, into the future, or maybe dragging is not the right word, but vis a vis of disruption, like totally radical, shiny object that you have a tendency, and, and you pointed out beautifully that right now we're talking about GPUs. And, and we're just not focusing that much uh, into into the model that actually these GPUs used, which could not sustain those GPUs. So how do you reconcile between the, between these two sort of um, school of thinkings?
1: I think as I've seen you know over the years uh, the extent to which the web disrupted much more complicated technologies and camera phones disrupted regular phones, um, I have uh, developed a great deal of respect for the awesome power of simplicity. And I think uh, it's typically simplicity is disruptive. So I look for markets where simplicity is coming in. uh, And instead of um, poo-pooing it as lack of sophistication, I see it as probably the front end of a disruption. And so in a large corporation, can you articulate that simplicity to people who are skeptical? And, and really make them understand, through a combination of history and and the extent to which it's versatile, that certain forms of simplicity are actually just people experimenting with ideas that are not great. But certain forms of simplicity are actually the front end, you know, of, of disruption. So, uh, so from a culture point of view, that it's it's really I think part of uh, our job as you know being in a new discipline is being able to articulate that same message in the domain vocabulary of all the people who created the previous successes for the company. Hmm. Uh, and, and so in each company, that answer of how you do that is specific to the culture of the company. It is specific to what the incumbent domains are that are driving, you know, that are driving to the product, the, driving the product. And so data scientists, that's why I feel a like data scientists have to be interdisciplinary because part of your job is coming up with, you know, interesting ways of using technologies. But part of your job is having that engagement, that conversation with a variety of uh, chemists, microbiologists, material scientists who are going to be you know adopters of your ideas, who are going to be collaborators with whom you had to co-innovate. Uh, so understanding, having that credibility and being able to speak to them in their domain vocabulary is, is kind of a key to success.
0: Interesting. I think beautifully said. Uh, thank you for sharing your point of view on that. So let's let's talk about let's talk about an um talk, talk about a hypothetical. So if suppose you are asked to run you know, a data science group and um, for a big large corporation um, with transnational focus, what are some of the things that comes to your mind? Like, How do you end up, what are some of the practices or some of the things that, what are three to four things that will come to your mind um, and, and, and how will you sort of get started in that journey?
1: Yeah, if you're, if you're hiring from scratch, the you know, first two or three or four people you hire are you know, very, very critical because they pretty much determine the trajectory of the organization. Um, I think I've been asked yeah, this question uh, before, which is, yeah, who do you want to hire first? What kind of what kind of person? Yeah. And yeah. I think again, back to my passion about interdisciplinary, you want uh, somebody with a core that's uh, of solving really hard problems, but having that interdisciplinary. And I think uh, I'm probably yeah. not terribly original in saying, ideally you want a polymath physicist. The physics part yeah. of it, solve things at scales, you know, that the rest of us are still sort of grappling with. And the polymath aspect says they, yeah. they, they respect you know, they have enough of a knowledge of other disciplines, Um, you know. The other thing I look for is, if I were to, you know, find this foundational member is a behaviorally, a second order thinker. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a a hedge fund manager, um, Howard Marks, who said, you know, there are a lot of first order thinkers in the stock market. Mm -hmm. The question is, do you have a second order thinker who can think about uh, what the world would look like if all the first order thinkers thought a certain way, right? Um, And I think in our market, Part of what hits us is we all can handle grapple with linear thinking. It's the nonlinearity we never uh, accounted mm. for that you know, typically comes and comes and comes and gets you. It's, it wasn't even on your competitive landscape. Um, so I look for those, you know. But you know, beyond that, you know, I think in our space it's, it's it's a very pragmatic space. You have to be a programmer, even if you're a manager. You have to be a programmer because the gap between good and great is a great deal of craft, and mm. you need to be enough of a practitioner to recognize. Nice, good craft.
0: Sort of bad. Interesting, interesting. So, um, I think when you were t- when you were talking that one thing that comes to my mind is um, data science as an art of doing business or as a science of doing business. I think I speak that a lot in the podcast and and, and take perspectives that. Um, in 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 doing business either you need an art of doing business and you need a science of doing business business folks they they are they they are the artists right they figure out how the and all that and it and database and they, they are pretty much the the science side of things and now with sort of with ai and know and and increasing reliance on on data science there the line is getting smudgier like so sometimes even the, the tech nerds are taking into into the role of arts and artists saying okay i can code too maybe and they 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 take the role of science what are your your thoughts on sort of on this uh this phenomena like how do how do uh, as a data science practice and and you, you you said some of some of the good things that um, Communicating and sort of people who can communicate, sort of they can help fix this gap. But what what are what is your thinking of how we can how we can create an organization where, in which data science actually is empowering both of these vertical uh, equally and and which do you have a preference on science versus art or what's your, what's your take on that?
1: You know, I think uh, the world of sort of massively online courses and books has certainly democratized you know, who can turn into a data scientist and theoretically, if you have the willpower, you know, you maybe don't even need a degree. You can take, a, you know, a bunch of MOOCs, you can go to Kaggle competitions and you can learn everything empirically. And I think I, I respect that as a show of willpower, but hmm. I feel, you know, when I hire people I'm hiring, you know, I'm making a, you know, five, seven, 10 year investment in them. So I still expect that you have to have a principal background in, in some space hmm. um, to really, thrive in this space with all the twists and turns it's going to take over the, over the next few years. Um, I do believe that I think, uh, I, I articulating your data story is a core skill that everybody has to, everybody has to have. And uh, I think it's, it's probably in, in our world where we are looking for a return on investment for our education. It's probably somewhat under-emphasized. Um, you know, if I were the, if I were the dean of uh, an engineering school or computer science school, I'd probably increase the amount of liberal arts that is in <laughs> mm. the core, 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 core curriculum, uh, not only because um, it allows you to be a better storyteller, but I think over time, as data science clashes with privacy, with ethics, depending on you know robotics, et cetera, having at least a peripheral understanding of the ways in which data science impacts society mm. would be important. To make you more effective as a
0: data scientist. Interesting. And and I think you, you put up best that you uh, should be able to articulate your data science story. Like now as a as a data science nerd, right? So or, uh, with a very heavy tech accent, I don't know what I'm like what are some of some of your thoughts on how can someone improve their storytelling? And I think you pointed out the liberal arts, I don't know, but but what are some of the hacks? If I'm a practitioner right now and and i can talk in bits and 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 maybe uh uh nibs like what are some of your thoughts on how you can uh, how i can improve my storytelling capabilities do you have some some pointers on that
1: yeah, i personally think the best way to improve your storytelling is to look for a storyteller who fits your style so yeah. i mean the classic examples are look at you know steve jobs first speech when he unveiled the iphone and you know how somebody's able to tell a story with just white and black which mm-hmm. you know compels you beyond anybody else or guy kawasaki has written certain books about that which appeal to my minimalist uh the mm. minimalist the uh, how, how i tell stories think the other thing i would recommend is um youtube and slideshare and so on have a lot of examples of pitches from startups pitches from startups that ended up becoming 100 billion dollar companies right and mm-hmm. many of those pitches have a le- have a level of they tell the story in a very compelling way. If you go back and look at that story now, you can see why those guys became hundred you know billion dollar companies because the story was very simple. So I think those I think a lot of this uh, simplicity and focusing on key elements and guiding your listener through um, you know the key transitions in your story, uh, understanding what your audience is. I think these are learnable skills. Uh, it's just that um, you need to you need to consider these important enough and invest in it. Uh,
0: Interesting interesting. And so I think let's talk about your journey. So what are some of some of the like consistent challenges that you that you are that you have seen throughout your journey, that you're surprised to see that? Uh, like, you, you, what are some of the things that you say? Like, I should not see this more often, but but you ended up seeing those? Do you have any any any, any take on those? I think the consistent
1: challenges are, um, that being an innovator is something we all, you know, want to be, but when you, if you're, if you're thinking differently, it takes much longer for mm. you to actually, you know, have an impact and you just have to accept that. Uh, you also have to accept, and it certainly took me a while, that the journey is a good part of the reward. So, you know, mm. you have to enjoy that part of taking a point of view that maybe, maybe not everyone, you know, I and mean, maybe not everyone sees it. And the fact that you, uh, you, you have that point of view, um, you know, is is what makes you tick. Uh, I think the other thing is, you have to be willing to accept that if you have an unusual point of view, your failure rate is going to be higher. <laughs> so you want to try multiple of these ideas. As uh, I think uh, Thomas Edison said, one of the things that makes me more successful is I, I fail much more quickly than the other guy.
0: Um, Interesting. Wow. No, I think that's that's a, that's a good point. And 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 what are um. As per you, what is the what is the tenet of a good data scientist? Uh, like, what is what is that one, in, or what are the ingredients of of a good or good data scientist or data science guy that you would uh, aspire to recruit or aspire to work with? Yeah, I think um, that varies
1: a little bit depending on the particular data science discipline. But if we if we consider that you know data scientists five, 10 years ago, we're probably in the marketing and retail science side of things where the data was already there. It was, and presumably somebody else collected it in a lake. And your job was really to sort of create that insight out of data with some combination of science and visualization and storytelling. But I think increasingly as we're moving to an internet of things kind of world where data doesn't necessarily come to you, you have to be inventive enough to go get it, clean it, curate it, curate it, or even create new devices to collect new kinds of data sets to complete your story. I think being a tenacious programmer cannot be overemphasized. Uh, I think the line between a a very principled data scientist and a programmer are definitely, definitely blurring. Uh, So you have to be that polymath that covers both of those. I think the other thing is you have to have an understanding of the domain beneath the data. Um, How was this data collected? What is the provenance of it? What does it mean to the customer of the data? Uh, so really spending a lot of if, if you're dealing with chemists or dealing with material scientists or dealing with biologists really understanding um you know the domain between beneath the data is, is super important and i think the third thing is depending on the business you're trying to impact having a business model understanding of what are the benefit spaces you know what is the so what you know behind mm-hmm. the data what does success look like and how rigorous does success need to be in this uh, business discipline for it to move the needle in terms of business value. And each business in, in, in that sense is, you know, insurance may have a different level of, of rigor than retail, which may have a different level of rigor than, you know, uh, movie recommender systems. So having that clarity of uh, how good does my conclusion need to be to, to be uh, a business benefit? I think those are things uh, you could argue that a, a data scientist is purely technical, but I think I, I I think to be successful, you want to be kind of this full service entrepreneur who does one or two of really well. But you have to be—you be great at one or two of these things and good at the others.
0: Interesting, interesting. And and if 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 we talk about say um, in your past teams that you have worked with, like what is the one thing that you would say that businesses could improve when when it, when it comes to hiring for someone in data science? Like what are some of the things that you could say? Hey, probably they could have done a better job if they would have done x y or whatever like if it's a one thing or an next things what do you have any take on that so one of my
1: favorite books about hiring um that i read because the title was so ridiculous um was called 11 and a half weird ideas that work it's by robert Sutton, as a professor at stanford uh, who had chapters that were named something like hire a person that you don't need uh or hire a person that you don't like uh and I guess it was a very influential book uh, to some extent on me because it it made me understand that diversity of thought in your team is very important so that you always have, you have a representation, not only of sort of the areas that you think are important, but potentially the areas that you need representation Mm. in your, your idea challenged in, in multiple different ways for it to emerge, emerge strong. So I would say, yeah, certainly based on the teams I have, um, I have recruited that have performed well. It is um, the ability to innovate vertically, the, the ability to have lots of different opinions that are articulated well, um, gives those checks and balances that makes your end idea original. It makes it fresh. It makes it minimal. It makes it effective.
0: Interesting. Now let's talk about your journey. Like your like what are what are some of the ingredients of your success so far? Like what what do you what do you say? Like some of some of the traits that has helped you be what you are today? I
1: think that's a, that's a difficult one. I think one is over time you, you have a clear sense of what you're good at and what you're not good at. And it, 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 you, you just get more honest about it because you've, you've mm-hmm. tried it multiple times. Um, I would say um, most of the things that uh, I found gratifying in hindsight with things that seem uh, uncomfortable in foresight, mm. so I think one of the things I would encourage people is: uh, if if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. But um, at the same time, when you're uncomfortable about an idea, it seems a little risky. You're also at the top of your game because you know that if you're not paying attention, you're definitely not you know, definitely going to going to fail. As uh, I think Larry Larry Page once said, um, the safest thing to do is to take risk, and the riskiest thing to do. Is, is to play safe. Right. Um, other than that, um, yeah, I would say you know having a clarity of what what my strengths are, um, sort of surrounding myself with people who complement that mm. uh, tends to be. It's it's it's. I think we're in a people business. If you hire the right sort of people, mm. and yeah, you, you have a culture where people want to succeed and they're willing to honestly state the problem and they don't view failure as something uh, you hide. You, you just view failure as you know part of the journey towards success interesting um, and interesting it, and it's much of what makes a team successful in data science or outside of data science for that
0: matter. interesting and and now let's talk about uh, like what are some of the do you think some of the kpis if if you are if you are leading a data science and ai practice what are some of the kpis that that, that you should be worrying about or that you should monitor
1: so that's an that's an interesting question in, in in sort of my context because often I was looking at new products new markets hmm. where part of defining the technology opportunity was also defining what success would mean um, you know so KPIs didn't exactly exist
0: hmm.
1: uh, so I, I'll give you an example um, the the work we did with um, well yeah, I guess I, I guess I might I might have to I might have to stop there with the, with the answer to that
0: one. Okay, okay, and and um, interesting. So let's talk about your favorite read. Do you have like if you want to share with our audience some like if you have any favorite read that you want to share? Yeah, so that's
1: an interesting question. Um, as I was you know talking to you uh, right before this uh, conversation started, uh, I just relocated to a new city, which means some of my old favorite books uh, were. It's sort of brought back to my consciousness in the in the process of boxing and unboxing. Um, so I would say two of my favorite reads in in, in that context, uh, old favorites if you will, were uh, there's a biography of uh, Isaac Newton. It's called Isaac Newton: The Last Sorcerer. Mm. Uh, what it uh, sort of exposes you to is not only was he was a great physicist, he was one of the preeminent polymaths who, oh by the way, invented a, you know a good chunk of astronomy as he as he, as he went by. And I feel like polymaths are somewhat in short supply in in the world today and Mm. and, especially as we look forward. Uh, The other book that, uh, you know, back to our dialogue about theoreticians um, is a book called Against the Gods, the Remarkable Story of Risk, which was how theoreticians back in the 15th and 16th century, uh, people invented probability for very, very pragmatic reasons around inventing insurance and inventing, you know, helping, helping nobles gamble. Uh, it just takes us back to a time when theoreticians were revered because they solved problems mm. in the real world. And uh, I think, that's, um, yeah, I think that's, that's something to keep in mind in, in a world where we are getting so segmented and so hyper-specialized that we have all these boundaries we're creating between theory and practice between different disciplines, where maybe the real value over time is and on the boundaries between these disciplines.
0: Interesting, interesting. No, I think, thank you so much, um, Venu. I think this was really, really remarkable. So before we part ways, um, love to know, uh, do you have any closing remark for our for our viewers? Yeah, no, I would
1: say um, the last two or three decades have been great for computer science, but I think the next two or three are going to, uh, I would say, bring profound technology changes even compared to the last two, whether it's in and data, AI, robotics, all the things we're involved in are gonna be important pillars. So I think uh, we as a community and as people have an elevated responsibility. One is to stay young, stay foolish, as uh, Steve Jobs would put it, uh, you know always be learning and articulating the positive change that technology can bring, especially you know, uh, to society at large and having sort of an empathy with people who are affected by the change, but mm-hmm. nevertheless really large uh, to create sort of a new and exciting future
0: i think beautiful report and with that thank you so much venu for um, gracefully agreeing to sit with us and and share your wisdom candidly with our, with our community it was it was it was beautiful um, thank you so much and we are always welcome back on the show um, to share your journey and wish you ama- nothing but luck with um, with your current role and uh, hope to catch up with you in your future about your journey
1: thank you for the opportunity vishal i hope your uh, hope your listeners enjoy this
0: thank you so much thank you